Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Gibbon, your host. This podcast is dedicated to inspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, first off, thank you very much. I would also appreciate it if you took a moment to follow the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is international best-selling author Elizabeth Wing, best known for her novel Codename Verity, whereas for me, she is best known as A Wind and Rise of the Future Volume 3, but we're going to get to that in a moment. Hello and welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. I'm talking to you from Scotland. It's nice to be here. It's very nice to talk to you all the way over there in, in Scotland. And uh, before I butcher anything else, I'll just leave it with that right there. So, <laughs> so um, now you were a winner in Volume 3. Um, volume 9. It was Volume 9. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're winner in Volume 9 with your story, Fire. And you had your fellow winners there. Then it was uh, Sean Williams, Eric Flint. Stony Compton, Kathleen Dalton-Woodbury, Brian Lee Durfee, and Carolyn Long. Are you still in touch with any of those folks? Uh, I am occasionally in touch with them. I'm friends with them on, on Facebook. I am friends with uh, Carolyn Long and Stony Compton on Facebook. And I actually bumped into Sean Williams in 2013 at the Brisbane Literary Festival in Australia, which was an amazing meeting because I was very, very excited to meet him again after after all those years. Mm-hmm. And he didn't actually realize who I was. And he had he had read Codename Verity and had loved it. So he he was excited to meet me. And it was only it was only sort of <laughs> after we'd after you know we'd said, Oh wow, I like your writing that he that we realized we'd both been on the um, Writers of the Future, of the future. award slate. Yeah. Wow, that's great. And then, yeah, it's uh, it was unfortunate uh, with the uh, recent passing of Eric Flint. Yes, um, that was that was sad. He was uh, he had been a judge, uh, as is Sean Williams. Um, yeah, but he had been a judge in the, in the contest, and um, that was stuff. He was he spent a lot of his his efforts helping aspiring writers and including them in his uh, series and in his publishing house. He had helped give them a a start boot in the pants, whatever, to get their careers <laughs> launched. He's a really, really nice guy. So I'm just curious, is there any particular aspect to uh, being a winner of Writers of the Future that you feel played a positive role in your trajectory as a writer? And if so, how so? Well, the I mean, obviously, being told that your writing is any good is always, you know, yeah. a great, a great boost. But for me, what was really the most wonderful thing about it was being able to get together with the other authors because I I was out there in the blue at that point. I really didn't know. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know how you talk to anybody, you know, mm-hmm. how you, how you exchanged ideas and, and sob stories with people mm-hmm. and having the chance to work with all these people was, was really, um, life-changing for me, eye-opening. And of course, I didn't really know much about the the science fiction fantasy field anyway. And they all said, oh, come to World Fantasy Con. And, and they said, you know, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Have you submitted stuff to this magazine? And it was, it was as I say, it was life-changing. That's great. And then I think that the story you wrote um, – 
was what was his relationship to Winter Prince? Well, I so I was I was although I submitted the story that I wrote, Fire, to the competition um, legitimately. I did not have a published novel or mm-hmm. a published story at all at that point. I was I was new to the field. By the time that the uh, award ceremony came around, my first book had already been published. (laughs) And that was, yeah. (laughs) So it was actually in the same month. So it was like, I felt like, you know, my ship had come in at that point. For sure. And and, uh, The Winter Prince was uh, a sort of Arthurian fantasy focusing on King Arthur's son, Mordred, and his his, um, stormy relationship relationship with his siblings, who I'd made up. And Fire was a kind of mini sequel to The Winter Prince, a a little epilogue. And it was because these characters were still, you know, very much alive in my head and I didn't want to let them go. And so I wrote it almost as soon as I finished writing The Winter Prince. And and that was the story that I submitted. That's it, that's that's a cool story how that works. Go ahead though. No, I was gonna say it came it came second in my quarter, um, which meant that I it did not go on to um be entered in, you know, the the grand prize competition. Right. And I was so glad that it hadn't because <laughs> and honestly, because if, if I had been, if I had been competing with these other authors for another prize, I don't think I would have enjoyed my experience there as much. I would have been, you know, Oh, I hope I win. I hope I win. And who's the competition. And instead I could just kind of sit back and relax and, and admire everybody and have fun. That's see, That was the year that Carolyn won. And, uh, uh, just an interesting anecdote on that particular um, phenomenon you're talking about there. Jerry Purnell used to love going around and he'll, he, once he knew who the grand prize winner was, he'd go up to him and say, don't worry, it's not you. And so he'd be totally all, you know, just chill now. Cause okay, it's not me. That's pressures off. I don't have to worry about it. Is it me or not? And then they'd be called he'd, the camera would be on them and you just see them totally flustered, like, uh, you know, trying to register because they'd been told they weren't it. And now they're being told they are it. And he used to love playing that game of, um, well, Carolyn and I during that week became like kind of instant best friends. Mm-hmm. We were, we were, you know, we've drifted apart in the 40 years or whatever it is, 30 years, yeah. I think since, <laughs> since then, but, but we really hit it off, um, very well. I, I, she said at one point, Oh, I feel like I found a sister. And so we were kind of like arm in arm. And at that point we, you know, we were both pretty young yeah. and you know, the, the cute girl couple walking arm in arm and, and was this united front. And it was so much fun being part of that little team. And uh, yeah. So I, I, I felt like I really, could root for her without feeling like I was in competition with her as well, which was yeah. nice. Well, that's nice. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many great friendships, you know, get created each year at the competition. Yeah. And now we're, we're actually going to be publishing volume 39 next April, but we started year 40. So the, um, wow. the actual contest for year 40 started uh, the beginning of this month of beginning of October and it's just amazing how long it's been going on. It just gets yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger as, yeah. a, as a contest. 
Well, the other thing, the other, um, you asked if I was still in touch with anybody. Actually, um, I had been in touch with my illustrator, um, Yuri Galitsyn. Mm-hmm. And his daughter contacted me when he died quite young. Um, it was it was maybe five, ten years ago now. But she put together a really lovely little tribute to uh, his illustration. He had a career as a children's book illustrator. And I think he's from Ukraine. I think so. Could be wrong. Yeah. And and she um, got me to write a, a little tribute to him to include in that. So that was that was another kind of, you know, nice and touching thing that came out of it. Yeah, there's there are a lot of really nice stories about it. And and the thing about Writers of the Future and Illustrators of the Future is it's all about storytelling and illustration. We don't get into anything else. It's it's like the quality of the storyteller, the quality of the artist is what gets celebrated every year. And it just keeps on building and building and building. We're not religious, we're not political, we're not ethnic, we're not nationality. It's just all about storytelling and all about illustration, which makes it really good. So on your writing career now, you've, um, so Arthurian legend is kind of like, is from what I've been able to gather is what began it all for you. So fantasy has been your, um, at least the start of stuff. And then we'll, we'll get into Codename Verity, which hardly qualifies as fantasy from the, the, my, my understanding of fantasy. <laughs> so let's just start, first of all, with, with your curve as, as an author. I believe your first novel was written at the, uh, at the golden age of seven or some such. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a series. It was like a spinoff of the Hardy Boys, but it was huh. called The Church of Girls, which I was writing with my then best friend. And we did actually complete one of those volumes. I mean, we, we had like the whole series mapped out, but we did actually complete one of those books. Now, novel is maybe <laughs> a bit of a grandiose term to use for this thing, but it was a completed story. Um, it was probably, you know, 10 typescript pages. Whoa. <laughs> but, but I did, I did write a novel when I was 11. Um, I wrote a, a time travel story. And I, I, at that point I said to myself, right, I want to be a writer. I want to write novels that, you know, put your money where your mouth is and, and write something. So I set myself the schedule of five pages a day for, I don't know what it was, three months or something. And it was all written in, in um, yellow legal school tablet, not legal tablets, school tablets. And that thing, my mother typed up for me many years ago when we used typewriters. And, (laughs) and it was, um, it was about 90 pages long. Uh, so I can't tell you how many words it was, but you know, it was, it was a substantial middle grade sized novel at that point. So I, you know, and that sort of got things rolling. I did, I, I have written many other novels, including unpublished ones since then. I have never held myself to such a tight schedule as I did back there in sixth grade. In sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've, you got lots of little vectors that came together to arrive where you are right now. Education, as well as your travels, as well as what you used to love reading stuff. So 
how that all come together? Like you can pick a vector starting with any one of those those points there, lines, and then like let's weave them together. So let's start. Okay, education. Education. Well, um, education. So I decided I was very, very fixated on wanting to be a writer and I wanted to be a fiction writer. So I actually bypassed some good opportunities to, you know, do journalism or something like that. Um, and I majored in English literature mm-hmm. at Yale. And I then went on to get a degree in folklore. I got a PhD in folklore at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's because with the the Arthurian background, I was obsessed with Arthurian legend and by extraction, Celtic literature and, and Welsh legend. And so I went into folklore thinking, well, this is a way to study myths and legend. And it was, but not in the way I expected. And what I ended up really getting a firm background in is narrative and folk stories and the way motifs work and the way archetypes work. And I also learned to do research. And my, I have five of these sort of quasi Arthurian novels to my name. They're all, they're all YA, they're all young adult. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are set in a in in a historical world they're they're fantasy by virtue of their feeling like fantasy and by virtue of their being arthurian uh, but they are set in our world mm-hmm. and there there's no magic in the background my editor at the time struggled to come up with a way to uh classify them and she came up with the term historical intrigue or or um his, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she was trying to she was trying to make it sound jazzier than just straight up historical, you know. And historical fantasy suggests that there is a fantastic element to them. Um, and the issue was that they were adventure novels; they were they were thrillers, but mm-hmm. they were set in this in this you know sixth century. Uh, I actually moved a lot of uh, King Arthur's family and his extended family to Ethiopia, to the ancient kingdom of Aksum, to to carry on these stories. So they had a a very. I, I did a lot of research for them, but they also had a very exotic feel to them because they were not set in. Uh, western in the western dark ages they were right. they were set at you know the height of the very civilized Aksumite empire and from there like while i was in the process of publishing these books i started taking flying lessons and that's probably the number one thing that changed the course of my writing my husband had had a pilot's license he'd already had it but you'd already got it when I first met him. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we had these plans to, we were going to fly across America. Of course we didn't do that because we had baby instead, but, <laughs> 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 but we, you know, I decided that darn it, I was going to learn to fly. And I, uh, when I sold my second book, I actually used the advance to pay for my pilot's license. Um, which I could do at that time, um, everything being that little bit cheaper than yes. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, and I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old 
at home underfoot that I was looking after as well as, as writing and, and taking these flying lessons. And it was the hardest thing that I have ever done. And I really wanted to write about it. And when my editor uh, put together, uh, my editor at, at that point was um, Sharon November, who worked at Viking, and she had her own imprint called Firebird. And she published a lot of um, fantasy that had gone out of print. She, re she reprinted. And she also published some original anthologies of fantasy and or speculative fiction she tried to she yeah. tried to be very all-encompassing um and that's partly because she was stuck with me writing for her <laughs> <laughs> and so the first story that i gave her um was was set in 1950s kenya and was about this uh minister's daughter who uh, goes on this, who has gone to join her family on this mission in, in Kenya, kind of during the Mau Mau rebellion. And, and she has to fly across Kenya, not by herself, obviously with a pilot, but it's this adventure that she takes. Mm -hmm. And it was based very much on a flight across Kenya that I did with my husband in uh, 1994. And this was, this was, stuck into this, wedged into this fantasy anthology. Um, and everybody kind of went, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they liked the story. And she did another one. And I wrote another short story about flying for it. And that was about a young woman who disguises herself as her dead brother to become a fighter pilot during the Battle of Britain. And at this point, Sharon had decided, she, you know, she figured out how to, how to make this thing fit in with the other stuff. I think that's when she uh, changed, the, changed the genre to speculative rather mm -hmm. than <laughs> fantasy and science fiction. Um, and that story went down really, really well. And she asked me if I could write an, uh, something, a novel that was a bit more mainstream for her and maybe something set in World War II like that was. And although she didn't end up publishing it, Codename Verity was the result. Um, and Codename Verity... Has she uh, kicked she, herself multiple times for having made No, that? it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. Oh, okay. She, she, she I... <sighs> she, she wanted that book desperately and she was not allowed to buy it. And um, she was very, very unhappy about it. Wow. Um, yeah. So I hope there are people who kicked themselves about it, but <laughs> <laughs> not her, <laughs> not, not her, not her. Um, she, she, she was very, very supportive of it all along, but yeah, it did go to somebody else eventually. And it was coding Verity was, it, it, it was born of, uh, it was the, my sixth novel. A lot of people think it's a, my debut novel because they've never heard of me, but it was my sixth novel and it was born of a tradition of writing spy stories and, and um, you know, about kind of people sneaking below the radar and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And although it doesn't, although you go, what world war II spies and airplanes, how'd you get there from uh, the salt mines of ancient Ethiopia it's really the characters and what they go through that kind of ties those things together. 
And after I wrote Codename Verity, uh, well, things sort of took off, no pun intended, (laughs) from there. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I wrote many other books about young people flying, including a Star Wars book, a middle grade Star Wars novel called Cobalt Squadron, which was at the middle grade tie-in to The Last Jedi. And I was, uh, there were so many reasons why I was just thrilled to do that. You, you know, finally, I was writing science fiction. Like, yeah. finally, I'm actually <laughs> writing science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I've been a Star Wars fan since I was 12. So but it was it was a real thrill to be able to do that. And also probably when you uh, saw Sean in uh, Australia, because he's also got a uh, Star Wars novel yeah, that he yeah, wrote. Yeah. So well, you guys were able uh, to further bond and, hey, how's that Star Wars? Yeah. And and Dave Wolverton, um, yeah. who who was the judge for, for and the editor for um, Volume 9, uh, was also a, a Star Wars writer. Yeah, Courtship so. of Princess Leia. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just curious, because you've got – you know, you've got all types of um, angles on on fiction. Is it a um, is it an issue, or what what holds true in storytelling that enables you to move between genres like you do, or like you have? Well, as I said, my stories are very character driven, so that's that's you know, kind of I Good. think what nails what nails things down for me is I fall in love with a character, whether it's I. I tend to I tend to drift more into fantasy when I write short stories. So I have like I have a short story where uh, the main character gets sort of kidnapped by the by the queen of fairy and has to make a set of bells for her, you know, and stuff like that. So so um, it's still even in something that's as far out from everything else I've written as as that might sound it's really the characters that that draw me in when i'm when i'm telling a story um and i've written nonfiction as well i've written a um a nonfiction young adult book about the russian women who flew combat missions in world war ii uh, the most famous of them are the night witches um who flew these dinky little planes made out of um, fabric and, and balsa wood and, and harassed the uh, soldiers on the German front all night long for the entire war. Um, and I was asked actually to, to write this book. And again, it was just the characters that drew me into that, these incredible women. And they were all led by one woman who was very, very charismatic, Marina Roskova, and who managed to kind of play the system to her advantage and 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 got these women to be able to fly. So it it's it's it always starts with character for me. So that's so now we're gonna move over here for a little bit on codename Verity, because mm-hmm. you're talking about this nonfiction, but then I listened to I, I listened to the audiobook and I hope that your publisher there got your last name correct finally. I don't believe they have actually. I, <laughs> I think they I think they've just signed a new contract for it and they and they it's still they, they still mispronounce Ween. They still mispronounce Ween. Yeah. 
I wish they'd say Vane because then rather than Vine, because at least then I could pretend it was Harriet Vane, my favorite Dorothy Sayers character. But but alas, but no, alas, <laughs> alas, no. Despite so, being told, yes, yes. So now you claim it's fiction, and I bet. I'm not, you know, it's it's unclear how much really is fiction versus I got that you've got these laws of secret material that still stays secret until whenever that's over with. But then you start putting in, yeah, when I did the research on the pens, how they could do it, find out, yeah, well, ballpoint pens actually began just prior to that. And it was the British and it was for the Air Force and it was, you know, all this stuff is like, wow. And then how many other things are just a coincidental fact and well it is fiction because <laughs> i made up the story <laughs> so it's it's wearing the trappings of uh, of truth of truth yeah i'm i'm, I'm minded of uh Chir- what did churchill say he said in wartime truth must be truth is so is so precious that she must be surrounded by a guard of lies or, or it, yeah. that, that's so, that, somewhat that, misquoted that concept, yeah. yeah but but something like that so i mean the book itself the story itself the characters itself i made them up they didn't really exist um and the things that they did didn't really happen even to other characters i mean to uh, to real people right. um but what about the girl when she got she turned the wrong way on the street and she got yeah, captured? Yeah, and so like all these all these little things did happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but not in the same order and not necessarily to the same people. I mean, yeah, you like, know, and I, then the the girl that flew the the nobody did that except for this one person in Russia. Well, you just I just reminded right. me when you said that book that you wrote about the Russian yeah. um, women aviators. Like, oh, that's the name you, you use that. Was that person yep. that, okay. Yeah, no, I do. I, I, I sort of steal shameless, shamelessly from everywhere. But the thing about Codename Verity is Codename Verity is the story of, for listeners who have not actually read it or maybe even heard of it. It's the story of two young women. One is a pilot and one is a spy. They're both flying for the, they're both British. They're both flying for the Allies, uh, working for the Allies during World War II. And one of them is sent on a, spying mission to Nazi-occupied France, which goes terribly wrong. And her friend, the pilot, tries to rescue her. And the story really is shaped around their friendship. So it's a spy thriller, but also it's about friendship. And so the, so the story is framed as... Uh, Verity, the the spy character, Verity is her code name, it's not her real name. Um, it's framed as a confession that she's writing for the Nazis. And she's been captured by them, she's been tortured by them, and now she's writing a confession. And so much of what she says is of dubious value. So she's telling them stuff that they can maybe make use of, um, but not necessarily what they want to hear. And she's also um, being very protective of some, well, of her friend in particular, um, who she knows is at large in France and and she doesn't want to um, give away. Um, So she disguises a lot of things in, in her writing. And there was a point 
where I, as the author, had to sort of sit down and think about what was actually fiction that I was writing and what was like made up garbage that <laughs> the Verity <laughs> character was writing. And, and, and some of it is true in that it is based on things that happened in World War II. And some of it is true within the fictional world of Codename Verity. And some of it is just completely made up uh, in no matter how you look at it. Um, one of the things that uh, Maddie, the pilot character, says towards the end of that book is she has told a true story. This is all true. Everything that she says about our friendship and how we work together and what we feel about each other is true. And I I feel that that's a comment on fiction. You know, it's it's a lie, but it tells the truth. So that that that's that's I think how you can get away with with telling stuff in a fictional story and making stuff up and giving wrong information because the story, the heart of the story and and its its meaning to people remains real. Yeah. A lot of a I mean, lot of people Sorry, I was just I was just rhapsodize about the Verity character. I, she feels very real to a lot of people. Um, it, it, she's she's a larger than life character, and I've had people name their dogs and their children and after her. And I've had people decide that they're going to go out and learn to fly. And people have become best friends because they've shared this book with each other. And it's just it's been an a gift. It's, mm-hmm. And it is the gift that keeps on giving as well. It's it's um, wonderful to have been to have written to this book and to see how people share it as well. Yeah. It's so do you call it historical fiction or is it thriller? What do you, what, how do you call that book? I do call it, I do call it historical fiction. Uh, Historical fiction is no longer a dirty word, um, which it kind of was in the beginning of the 21st century when I was writing it for young readers. But, um, partly because of the success of Codename Verity, that is no longer the case. Um, people don't seem to be turned off by the term historical fiction anymore. Yeah. And I mean, that really is what it is. It, it's not, it, it's not really disguising itself as anything else. Although I still maintain that I write adventure stories about young people. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. It's like Anne McCaffrey on all the Dragon Rider series. She would, she argued, you know, to the grave that she only wrote science fiction, that none of that stuff was fantasy. You know, she right. just, no, this is what it is. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and she thoroughly explained to me multiple times why it was science fiction, how it was done, how it was verified by scientists and the whole thing there. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah. There you go. Yes. So now that book, Codename Verity, hit number one in the United States and the New York Times. And... Ten years after publication. Really? Ten years ten years after publication in March of twenty twenty, it did that. Wow. What what caused that to have a second um, life uh, like that? Well, uh, so what what caused it to make that leap onto the New York Times bestseller list is that it was um, in a special promotion by Barnes and Noble, uh, where you could buy a coffee and a book for five dollars, and and Codename Verity was that book. 
for the month of February. And that's what booped it up onto the- oh, That's more than a boop. Into the number one position. That's yeah. a wowzer. It was, it, was, um, it was astonishing to have that happen in March of 2020. Um, and my- new publisher, I, I'm no longer with uh, Disney Hyperion, I'm now with Little Brown. Uh, they actually put out a 10th anniversary edition of the book. Sorry, I said that happened 10 years after publication. It wasn't 10 years after publication. It was 10 years after I wrote it. So there was a, a 10th anniversary edition of Codename Verity that came out in May, I think, of this year. Uh, which included a new short story that was connected to the book and, and, you know, a sort of essay by the author and a letter to the reader and a, and a interview. And so it had, a, it had a lot of new material included in it. And it was, I mean, it's, it's still bringing in royalties for me. So which is it's great. I mean, it's just, just a amazing. lovely story. It's an amazing story. This is the writers of future podcast. And so I, pretty much talk to science fiction and fantasy authors. And so when I started, you know, listening in preparation, because I, I never do an interview unless I've actually read at least something from the author. So I reread your, your fire. And then I also listened to this audiobook. I actually listened to it a couple of times to, because again, it was getting into a different genre, which I'm not, you know, used to. And it was amazing just how much I enjoyed it. And uh, then that little 10 minute segment uh, on the audiobook where you, you describe some of the different things with the book and you gave some of the different anecdotes, like the one about the ballpoint pen. Any other things like that in there, which you found out in research that was just like, wow, how it was a very convenient coincidence, like I said, on the ballpoint pen that you had to have that because she was writing a bunch of stuff and she was going to poke herself dead. Yeah. <laughs> with <laughs> getting enough blood to keep on writing her story. <laughs> um, I mean, there were loads and loads of things that, uh, that I kept uncovering as I was writing it. But the, the one that springs to mind is there's a, there's a point you say she's going to poke herself dead to write with <laughs> I will finish this story. I actually had to, she was such a prolific writer. Mm -hmm. She, I say she, I mean, I'm her mouthpiece, I guess, but yeah. it felt like she was doing it. She was such a prolific writer that I realized um, after she'd been writing for a week or whatever it was, that if I didn't stop her, because she had been given a certain amount of time to do this, and that this book was going to be a thousand pages long. So at that point, the plot was driven by the fact that I had to stop her writing and I had to take, <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I had to take away her paper <laughs> and, and, and what this, um, so she's writing on, she's writing this confession in this, um, repurposed hotel that the Nazis have taken over in this little city in France. And, she's writing on, on used, on unused hotel stationery. Mm -hmm. And so they run out of that and she's looking for more paper. She wants to keep writing and she finds all these old recipe cards. And then she finds all these old prescription sheets. And I went looking for 
it was really interesting for me as a writer to think about, well, you know, they're not going to waste nice paper on her. They're not going to give her special paper. And plus she's using up a lot of paper. So they're going to repurpose stuff. And I was thinking, well, you know, what is going to be lying around? What, what will they be able to find? Eventually she writes on some, on some sheet music that has, you know, they've found in the lobby of the hotel by the old piano or something. And when I, when I went to do the, the, to use the prescription forms, these virtual prescription forms, I thought, well, I better look them up and see what they, and what they look like and what a prescription form in France looked like in, you know, say they dated a few years before the war. And what I found was these, I didn't know these existed. I found these special prescription forms that you had to use if you were a Jewish doctor under Nazi occupation. So you could only write prescriptions for other Jews. You had to have a, a, a specially imprinted form that showed you were Jewish. And I was just like, oh, my God, you are kidding me. And of course, I mean, we know this, you know, mm -hmm. we, we know that that these kinds of restrictions were put on people, but it's the, the little everyday details that don't ever occur to you. And, and it was that kind of thing, like the ballpoint pen that right. I, I was just really fascinated by. Another thing was the, um, the, what there's one point where the, Oh, I don't know. She's constantly, she's constantly battling with her guards and, uh, she has this kind of running relationship going with, she has one female guard who is a, a German girl and this young woman is, reads what she's written every day after she's written it and, and is sort of sitting there impatiently waiting to be given the next part of the story. And at one point, um, Verity tells this story of how, um, she's given a pen nib that, Oh, she's they're They're scrapping. They do a lot of scrapping and, and, uh, uh, Verity bends the pen nib so it doesn't work. And, um, the guard then shows her how, when she was at school, a nurse used to use a pen nib to do a blood test and like, you know, pricks yeah. her finger with it. And I found this out again going, okay, well, what's she writing with? She's not writing with a ballpoint pen because they hadn't been invented yet. Um, she's writing sometimes with a pencil, sometimes with a fountain, well, probably not a fountain pen, but an ink pen. And so what happens if you break your pen nib? Well, they had boxes of pen nibs and, you know, you find this stuff on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, there's a box of German pen nibs. And and people tell little stories about these things. And one of the stories was how uh, the nurse in this German school used to do a blood test by pricking your finger with a pen nib. So again, just like tons and tons of, of just everyday life stuff that you unearth that there isn't really any, you know, it's not, it's not thrilling. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it's not hugely significant, but being able to add that into the story gives it, gives it, um, I think makes it feel very real 
but there were a lot of little details like that that I that I ran into. That's great. See, one of the things about your story, and probably true in, in other things that you've uh, written, but that's one that you know I've prepared this uh, podcast over, is the degree that you have those points of fact and these these factual historical things that occurred. I couldn't tell. <laughs> Where the the fact ended and the fiction began, it was it made it such a smooth transition, and it seems like because one of the next questions I'm going to ask you is recommendations to aspiring writers or even writers trying to get that next level up on what's important in telling a good story. Well, I I what I tell uh, kids when I talk to them because I talk to a lot of school groups, um, and there are plenty of aspiring writers among those groups is write about something that you're passionate about. And honestly, I don't think there's anything more important that, that I could say to an aspiring writer. You have to love what you're writing about. Right. And you don't, you know, everybody always says, write about what you know. It helps to write about what you know, but what you really need to write about is what you love. And, and I think that that, that just adds a level of um, it, it drives the writing. And the for me, it was, there, it was is, a lot more sincerity that I got from that because of what you had there. It was like, that was people were so real to me in Verity, you know, that both of them, both of your protagonists there, but the antagonist was also your, the. Yeah. Well, so this is the, the other thing that I was going to, I mean, I write very, character driven stuff. So yeah. I can't when I started out to make up the antagonist that so this is all the the characters who are who are um in charge of the Nazi prison and um Verity has been interrogated by um a guy who is pretty high up the feeding chain but not at the top. And uh he just started sprouting he was he started out as this like really you're typical Nazi interrogator. And he started sprouting all these like personality traits. (laughs) (laughs) And he, it turned out to, you know, have this love of literature and of music and very specific love of literature. He's like really kind of interested in reading subversive stuff. So he, he reads stuff that's been banned in Nazi Germany. And he, um, he has a daughter that he's very that he has carefully sent to boarding school in Switzerland so that she's in a neutral country and so like he has all this all this stuff going on that um which she eventually extracts from him and um it, he turns out to be quite a complicated person yeah um and who is intrigued by her um and and I often get asked, well, why does he let her? Sometimes people say, well, this book isn't very realistic because this guy just let her write all this stuff. I'm like, can you not tell? He's fascinated by her. And she reminds him of his daughter. <laughs> it's like, it's not hard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, he is actually a human being, despite the fact that he's a Nazi interrogator. Um, I know it's hard for us to remember that these people were human because they seem so inhuman. And I feel that their humanity almost makes them more scary. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that 
the fact that they can have all these all these outside interests and and be so refined and have people that they love and care about and still do these things is really scary because that could be your next door neighbor or maybe you, you know? Um, so I don't know. Sometimes I worry that in another life I was a Nazi interrogator. <laughs> <laughs> it came so it's easy like, to you. Right? Do, well, no, how do I get into the heads of these people? <laughs> well, but, you got um, into the heads of, of also these pilots. I got into and you got everybody's, everybody's head. head. Everybody's yes. head. Yep. Yep. Um, I, the other, the other piece of advice that I would give is, details really make a story come alive. They always make a story come alive for me. Um, so those, you know, pen nibs and um, the sheet music that you're writing on, uh, that really very concrete details, I find make a story come to life. And you, I, I actually did this in, in um, Cobalt Squadron, in my Star Wars book. I it, like the same kind of everyday stuff so I mm-hmm. made up this thing that that synthesizes fruit and and but but it and it's a cranky machine and you know and it looks like there's stuff on the table where they this is the kind of stuff that I love in mm-hmm. a science fiction book myself. So just think about like the details of what your characters are going to have to um you know, because they're living no matter, you know, even if they're at war or they're in space or they're um, or they're trapped in a cave somewhere, they're right. nevertheless, they have to sustain themselves with food and warmth and, and light and all these things that, that we just do on a daily basis. And those little details, I think, um, can really lift a piece of writing um, to a higher level. Yeah. Now, what about, you obviously do a lot of research in your stories that you do, just background, getting the, the setting, the environment, uh, that type of personality. And I've gotten this one, I've talked to the various writers on, on other interviews, uh, the importance of not putting all this information down, look how much I know about this thing here, but that creates that personality. And maybe it's nothing more than that they would act or react a certain way because of what they are so that someone who's reading would actually gain that, that understand. Oh, I know, understand this person. Now you don't have to say, um, and we're talking about the desert, all the different qualities of a desert, but, but the right. effect of the desert, you automatically know all these other things that you don't have to now write. Right. Right. I mean, I'm assuming that there's a lot of stuff that you have that you learned that you dis- that you uncovered as you were doing your research for Verity, codename Verity, that isn't in the book, but it, that made the book or makes the book that much more real. Yeah. So, so one of the things that um, th- that people who don't get along with codename Verity uh, don't like about the book. Um, that I hear again and again, it is, th- is that it has too many, this is, I quote, too many technical details. And that is because it is a book about flying. Now, here's the thing. Had I wanted to put in technical details about flying, <laughs> yeah. there would have been a lot more technical details in right. the book. So, um, you know, the reader doesn't need to know about engines or, I mean, the reader does need to know certain things. So there's a plane that gets hit by um, 
gunfire and it becomes very difficult to fly. And so there is a little bit of explaining to you why it's doing what it's doing because it, it, it becomes so that you, it, it only wants to go up. You can't make it go down or it's, it, it takes a lot of strength to make it go down. Um, and so you do need a little background to understand that or to make it plausible, right. you know, at the very least. But I'm not going to give you like the whole explanation of what's going on there because you would go blind, you know. <laughs> well, you, you listen to the audiobook. You would you would turn off the audiobook, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or fast forward or something. Right, right. Um, and I got so fed up with people accusing me of having included too many technical details in this book. There's like one paragraph where, where there are two places where I think it comes up. There's one paragraph very close to the beginning where um, Verity says, okay, they told me to write about planes. So I'm going to write about planes. And she says, here is a plane that I have heard of. Um, You can fold up its wings and put it in a truck for easy transportation. And that's like, that's kind of the limit of the technical details. (laughs) But then there's this other point where she's talking about radar and what it looks like when you're, when you're looking at a radar screen an early radar screen and what the, um, happens when um, there's an air battle going on. You see the lights coming together and each of those lights represents an an airplane. And to anyone who reads this, and thinks this is her giving you technical details, I say you need to... Chill. <laughs> no, no, no. I, it frustrates me so much. It frustrates me so much because this is this, like, huge metaphor for, for like, life. The, these p- points of light on this screen, each one represents a life. And when the light goes out, a whole air crew has, has gone out with it. And... This comes back later on in the book because they're green lights and there's this this theme of the green flash and 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 Verity's own life is compared to a, a green light and the the whole thing is just an extended metaphor and if all you're seeing is technical details I feel like you're not reading deeply enough I mean I do appreciate yeah. that. It's a it's a difficult book and it's a literary book, so maybe the technical details are too hard to get beyond to, to get to the metaphor. But it does frustrate me, um, and it frustrated me so much that in Rose Under Fire, I wrote a whole section based on the principles of flight, mm-hmm. and each section talks about a different principle of flight. That there are four principles of flight: so lift, drag, weight and um, thrust. And the main character, Rose, uses each one of these principles, describes a little bit how it works and what it means and what it does when you're flying. And then she turns it into this extended metaphor for what's going on in her life. And I just sat there going, ha, ha, ha. You wanted technical details? I've given you technical details and no one has ever complained about it. And no one has ever said, Oh, that bit was boring. They're all like, Oh, this is such a lovely little metaphor. So. <laughs> That's um... you just have to be careful. The answer to your question is don't overwhelm people with information. <laughs> right. But by having all the information, by you're having that knowledge of what they um, are about, the type of person it is makes it easy for me to like not distinguish between what's actually happening and what's not because you've created that 
persona that I can then understand. I can, I can feel, I can yeah. sympathize with them or I can antagonize with them, but like, I know that person. And so when they do something else, it's just, it's that transition to the science, science fictional aspect of it or the um, fantastical or the, just the fictional part of it that just happens. And and this is kind of patting myself on the back, but I feel like I've done my job well if if that's the case. Um, yeah. And that that is really that's what we want to do with when we're telling the story of a fictional character. We want the reader to relate to that character, even if they don't like that character. You know, we we want we want the reader to to think, wow, this feels like a real person. And if it's somebody that that um, is likable or that 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 they you know, sort of share characteristics with, we want them to go, Oh gosh, I, I really do sympathize. And I don't know. That's it feels like that's the whole point Yeah, is to, to make you, make you empathize with the character. Yeah. And then I think part of the, the, the story itself too, in Codename Verity, and that's how much is it, do you think is important in, tell, in telling a, uh, a fiction story to have like a, a theme or, a message or what is well, it? I don't, I actually don't want to preach to my readers. I don't mm-hmm. want to tell them what decisions they should make or what's good or what's bad. I want them to decide that for themselves, but I do have, I do have one theme that kind of thunders through everything I've ever written. And that is take responsibility for your own actions. And I, I feel that this applies to my good guys and my bad guys um, mm-hmm. that, you know, if, if you've, if you've done it, you need to own it. Um, and, but, but the other thing that I've found is that every book that I write does actually have a theme. And I said that Codename Verity is a book about friendship. I didn't really know that until I'd written it. Very often I will, I will go back and I'll look at it and I'll go, Oh, that's what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I do it time and again. Yeah, I have a book. I was going to say I have a book coming out in March. Um, another called Stateless, which is another flying book about young people, and its underlying theme is Europe. I didn't well, plan that. <laughs> okay, good. So this is um, fiction or nonfiction? It's fiction. It's a it's a novel. Okay, that's great. It's um, so that comes out in spring of of 2023. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. I also want to thank Carnation for sponsoring this show. We really appreciate your support on this, and just for anybody listening, Carnation only tastes good. In my humble opinion, they've got good taste. Rise of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you.